The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 55, Engines, May 15th, 2014. So Jeff, what kind of horsepower do you recommend for a usable search engine? Har, har, har. Well, you know, unlike a, you know, say a brush DC motor where you're going to get your, your maximum torque at stall, uh, you're going to have a, a, a torque curve on a search engine where uh, you peak somewhere, you know, mid-velocity. So I suggest something maybe, uh, oh, say 96, 97 horsepower to make sure that in, you know, when you're searching a, uh, oh, a short word like cat or dog, you get good acceleration, but you've, when you've got a long word like anti-disestablishmentarianism, you don't ruin your fuel efficiency. So mm-hmm. I think somewhere in that just just shy of 100 horsepower is good for a search engine. And are these still suck, squeeze, bang, blow engines? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> what what other kind of engine is there? I'm not sure. I think that's what we're trying to find out tonight. <laughs> well, this, that's right. That's right. Well, in our last episode, our uh, guest Kai Drung talked about steam engines. He talked about uh, in thermo, uh, talking about cycles for for steam engines, and uh, it kind of got us thinking about the fact that a common means of producing mechanical work in this world are engines. And that maybe we should do an episode about engines. Good suggestion. You think that's pretty good? Yeah. I don't know. You think it might be too technical for engineers? I don't think so. All right. Not, not this podcast. <laughs> maybe other podcasts, not this one. We'll see how they do when we distribute the test afterwards. Ooh, that's right. Special quiz. <laughs> yes. If they fail, they have to pay for each episode from this point on. Ooh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> We're exempt, right? Oh, uh, I hope okay. so, yeah. Well, our, our guest for this episode is uh, Clay Coons, who's an aeronautical engineer who worked on jet engines for NASA and uh, diesel engines for his current employer and a lot of automobile engines in his quest to ensure that each and every vehicle he owns has at least 250,000 miles. And some of our listeners may remember Clay from episode 30 when we talked about his adventures in traveling the world. So, Clay, welcome back to the Engineering Commons. No, oh, thanks for having me. Well, certainly. Before we get too deep into this, Clay, uh, calling back to the last episode and your jury rigged repairs, how many of your engines and your vehicles have aluminum foil on them? Uh, none. Currently, none. <laughs> I, I will admit none. to all, using all just shoestrings and bubble gums. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, there's not too much uh, jury rigged uh, fixes on my cars at the moment. I kind of moved into using actual parts. You know, once you get more money, you can buy parts as opposed to using hangers and and straps and things like that. (laughs) It's always sad when a guest sells out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now, Clay, have you ever been involved in the, uh, this debate over the difference between a motor and an engine? Um, not the debate, but I mean, I, I tend to correct people, but, uh, in, you know, in my mind, uh, a gasoline or a diesel engine is, in fact, an engine, not a motor. To me, a motor is like an electric motor. So when I hear the, uh, you know, the NASCAR guys talking about the motor in the car, it kind of kind of grates. Right, <laughs> right. I, I attacked it one time, thinking, well, I'll just be logical about this, and I'll look at the definition and figure it out. And and I ended up with some people claiming that a motor was a subset of engines and other people claim that engines were subsets of motors 
And it's at this point in time, they're pretty interchangeable and people use them interchangeably. So I wasn't going to mess too much with it. Yeah. I mean, some people you can't convince anyway. So after a while you quit trying. <laughs> well, now the, the closest I saw was uh, one definition said that a motor was a machine that converted other forms of energy into mechanical work or mechanical energy. And an engine is a motor that converts thermal energy to mechanical work. Do you have any problem with that definition? No, no. That sounds good to me. (laughs) (laughs) Suffice for now. Yeah. So the term engine gets applied outside of engineering. You know, in the computer world, there are search engines and graphics engines and difference engines. But in in the mechanical world, engines are devices. Pretty much the agreement is engines are devices that perform mechanical work. So uh, the problem is that the term engine gets attached to so many things, it gets confusing. You know, we, we hear about engines being classified by their power source or their configuration or their cooling method. And so people talk about pneumatic motors or hydraulic motors or electric motors. So that'd be pow- by power source. Or if they're talking about spatial configuration, they may talk about a V12 engine or an inline eight engine or a rotary engine or an air-cooled engine, a water-cooled engine, which is, is specifying it by cooling. But I think that, in large, when people talk about engines, they're talking about heat engines, and those are engines that convert thermal energy to mechanical work. And so that would classify steam engines, gas engines, diesel engines, Stirling engines. So what I wanted to, uh, to get your expertise on this evening, Clay, was if you could kind of walk us through the three biggies are spark ignition engines, which we think, you know, the gas engine that are in automobiles, uh, diesel engines, which are often the engines put in, in trucks and big buses, and then jet engines, which are the engines that are used on uh, planes and aircraft. Can you give us sort of, you know, the big picture tour of what the differences are between those engines and why one would use one engine over another? Um, I'm trying to think the best way to start with this. So when you go back, you know, probably the first engine that was developed was the the gasoline spark ignition engine. Mm -hmm. And that worked real well. But, you know, that when they – so they would use, you know, piston engines for, you know, the first planes had propellers. But after a while, there are limitations in uh, how much thrust you can create because of the propeller and the engine and and sort of the aerodynamics – and so, um, and so I'm kind of working up towards the jet engine. So, so in those early uh, planes, though, those were they tended to be radial engines, right? Where the pistons would go out from the center, and that's part of the reason that wasn't very aerodynamic. Um, I'm I'm not sure the first ones were, but when they went to radial engines, that was I mean it kind of solved the cooling problem because you got all the cylinders and the pistons up front, and you had a lot of airflow over them. Um, cause I think most of the radial engines were, were typically air cooled, but you know, when you go back to like, uh, World War II, I know like the, uh, the Mustang, the P51 Mustang, that was a water cooled, I believe V12 Rolls Royce engine. Um, so, you know, they, they were, you know, you had this big round device on the front of the plane. So the plane couldn't be very aerodynamic, but the, some of the, the Germans and the American planes, the later ones, went to uh, water-cooled um, V engines instead of the radial engines. But, yeah, a lot of the first ones were, were radial engines, which were pretty unique. You don't really see them around too much anymore. So just to distinguish between a gas engine and a diesel engine and a jet engine, uh, we're talking about pistons in a, in a gas engine. Can you give us the 
you know, the quick quarter tour of the compression and the ignition cycle in a gas in a engine. spark ignition engine. Sure. So, um, yeah. and we're, we're, we're not going to talk about turbocharging or anything, but, uh, so this would be just a, a naturally aspirated engine. So the intake valves open. Um, and so you're looking at one cylinder when the intake valve is open and the piston travels down, you're, you're drawing air into the cylinder when around the time when the engine's near the bottom of its stroke, uh, the in, the intake valve closes. As the piston comes up, um, it compresses that air. I'm sorry. Let me back up. Uh, so I'm, I'm too used to diesel engines here. As the on the intake, <laughs> usually you've got that. Now they're all fuel injected. They used to have carburetors, but on the intake stroke, the gasoline is mixed with the air. So you're getting in a mixture of air and gasoline vaporized as as you're on the intake stroke. When the intake valve closes. The piston comes up, you compress that air and gasoline mixture, and typically it's before top dead center, but as the piston approaches the top, then you fire the spark plug. As the as you get a spark, then that pressurized air and gasoline mixture ignites, um, and you want it, it burns rapidly, but you don't want it to burn too rapidly, because then it, you kind of get small explosions and that's when you get the knocking or the pinging in the engine is actually is mm-hmm. actually when it burns too fast. And so you get that uh, ignition and that pressure that's developed because when you heat that up, the volume wants to expand, the pressure goes way up so it pushes that piston down. As it pushes that piston down, that's what creates the torque on the crankshaft at the back end. So as that piston comes down, you, you use up that energy, and then as the piston comes back up, the exhaust valve opens, and you push all of the exhaust byproducts out the exhaust valve, which goes out the exhaust. As you get near the top, the exhaust valve closes, the intake valve opens, and you start all over again. So that's a four-stroke engine, which I don't even know if they make too many two-stroke engines in the U.S. anymore. That's a four-stroke engine. Lawnmowers. <laughs> I don't even think they make two-stroke lawnmowers anymore. I don't think they meet emissions. Weed whackers? Yeah, I, I think my I, – I assume my weed whacker is two-stroke just by the fact I have to give it the uh, the oil-gas mixture. I'm not sure what the emissions regulations are on those, but as far as like like uh, uh, lawnmowers, you can't get a two-stroke engine anymore in a new lawnmower. Hmm. Okay. And, and you talked about pinging. Now, I know that when you go fill up uh, your gas tank – you know, you can pick various octanes, and the higher octanes were supposed to reduce pinging. How does all that work? Well, I'm not a fuel specialist, but I know what the octane does is basically it's a measure of, you know, how how evenly or, or smoothly the fuel burns. And so um, the, the higher the octane, uh, the more resistant it is to that pre-ignition or, you know, igniting before it's supposed to. So really what happens is, um, and they've got some pretty, I've seen some pretty cool graphics on it or, or computer models. And we've actually, I've seen engines with little cameras through quartz windows into the cylinder. But what you want as the piston comes up compressing and the spark plug goes, uh, you should get a smooth flame propagation across the cylinder. So, you know, it, it, in, when you get pre-ignition, instead of just this flame propagating across the cylinder, you see, you know, it popping up in places that's not just a smooth propagation. And so basically it's pre-ignition or, you know, knocking or basically it's the fuel 
burning uh, faster than it's supposed to. So that's when you get the, the pinging or the knocking that you hear. And it's usually when the engine's under load. So if you've got if you've got an engine that needs 93 octane gas and you put in 87 octane gas, a lot of times when you hear that's when the engine's under load. So if you're climbing a hill or you're really trying to accelerate hard, that's when your engine tends to knock. Maybe that's why my lawnmower knocks when I do the scrap. <laughs> the slant on my lawn. <laughs> Is it self-propelled? No. I cheaped, oh. <laughs> I cheaped out. <laughs> okay. And I wouldn't think the load would be that much more if you're if you're pushing it uphill. It's a pretty steep hill. Uh, okay. That's it. But, yeah, but the blade, your blade doesn't have to work any harder. True. I don't know. Could it have to do with the fuel distribution in the tank? Like maybe it's slanted in a certain way or the engine well, isn't good enough? I would believe that the engine might be starving for fuel, but I wouldn't. I would think it would stop, not not. Yeah, that would power. tend to make it stall. Yeah, start ah. missing out. Well, see, this is why I'm electrical, yeah. not mechanical. <laughs> it does make a weird popping noise, though, on occasion. Could it be something with the carburetor and it being tilted? Possibly. Welcome to lawnmower this week. <laughs> Lawn care and you. It sounds like a good home improvement. Can we get some grunting noises. <laughs> 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 Anyway, that's close enough. That works for me. All right. So, so Clay, the the uh, the internal combustion engine that what we think of as being the automotive engine has been with us for a long time. I mean, there's been some changes over the years, but pre pre what is about the 1960s, 1950s. I mean, there were you know inline engines, and we went to the V V4, V6, V8, V12. But I mean, the the piston engine has has been a staple of the automotive industry for years and years and years. Why has it not changed? Because it works and it's economical. I mean, um, you know, we've tried uh, rotary engines um, that you mentioned earlier. And, and while it's a neat concept um, and it's kind of hard to do on the radio, um, I'm, I tend to talk with my hands and that doesn't <laughs> translate real well. Um, and I can't even remember what the shape is called, but the, the um, the rotor that's inside a rotary engine looks more or less like a triangle, but it's a rounded triangle. So it looks like a triangle that somebody tried to tried to blow up. And and okay. as that rotates, you know, you've kind of got you know these places in the engine. So instead of the piston moving up and down, as this you know this this triangle that's kind of off center in the thing, as it rotates, it kind of does the same thing. You get expansion so it draws in the air then you get compression and as you compress the air and gasoline mixture you get the spark and then that pressure is formed which which pushes the rotor around and then you get the power stroke and then you kind of do it over so um i'm certainly not a rotary engine expert but you know you've got this rotating piece so it's kind of you know it's kind of a neat concept and you know i think it's got some uses but they were <clears throat> excuse me there were oil seals on the tips of that triangle and i know those were subject to a lot of wear and once they start to wear you start losing compression because as you start um you know trying to trying to compress that that gas and air mixture if you don't have a good seal that pressure starts leaking over back through the seal on the other side and so you know they weren't as durable as uh, as gasoline engines and I, you know, while Mazda with the RX-7, you know, they were kind of fun to drive, but uh, they weren't very durable mm -hmm. and they were very expensive to repair. 
And so, you know, I mean, uh, the gasoline engine, you know, it just, it works and it, it's pretty easy to work on and they've been able to uh, modify it to meet a mission. So, um, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm sure they've worked on some other things when I was, when I was at NASA, they actually had the old parts for the uh, Chrysler gas turbine that uh, Chrysler tested in cars back in the uh, early 60s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was kind of a neat concept, and, and they had a lot of torque, and, you know, they're pretty much, you know, kind of, you know, constant torque. It, it's a neat idea, but uh, they're terrible on uh, fuel consumption, which is kind of the problem that, uh, you know, with the, the M1 tank is is a great tank, but that uh, that gas turbine engine uses a lot of fuel. And so, you know, that they, at different times they've talked about trying to come up with a diesel engine uh, to put in there. And as far as I know, they never did it. But a uh, turbine engine's great, but it's not very fuel efficient. So we always think about, you know, more horsepower is better and more torque is better. But part of the problem is the usage, right? The, the need for vehicles to accelerate and decelerate, which it works great. Actually, a uh, internal combustion engine is good for that, but a, a jet engine isn't so good. Uh, correct. Correct. And so, well, and then when you think about, you know, jet engine, um, you know, there's a, the jet engine or the turbine engine is, you know, basically, well, let's go back to how it works real quick. So, you know, instead of like the four stroke, you know, you've got intake, compression, power, and exhaust. With the with the turbine engine, you you don't have any reciprocating components like that. So basically, in the front of the jet engine, you've got a compressor, and generally it's a multiple stage compressor. But basically, as the air comes in the front of the engine, you've got rotating blades, and and it can be an axial or a centrifugal compressor compresses the air. And why do you want to compress the uh, air? As you compress the air, basically you're you're putting more oxygen into a given volume, which means you can, uh, when you put the fuel to it, that's what creates the power. So you need ox- you need ox- an oxidizer and a fuel, or typically oxygen and a fuel. And so as you, you want to, if you higher pressure, you've got more oxygen or oxidizer, so you can put more fuel in and get more power. And in, in engines, um, both jet engines and compression engines, uh, the issue is is typically air. It's it's not too hard to get a lot of fuel into a volume, whether it's a piston engine or uh, you know spark ignition or diesel or jet engine. The issue is having enough air to burn it efficiently and burn it effectively. And so uh, that's you want to get more pressure into the cylinder or through into the combustion chamber of the jet engine. So then you can put more fuel in and burn it more efficiently. So the issue is air, not fuel. Uh, you can typically put in all the fuel you want to. After a while, you've got too much fuel and you're too rich and you won't burn it all. So so a jet engine, you've got compressors on the front. After you compress the air, it goes into the combustion chamber. And, you know, typically... It's continuous combustion, so it's not like, you know, you don't have a spark plug or anything like that, or you're not injecting fuel. Uh, In a diesel engine, you compress the air, and when you've got this high-pressure air, then you inject the the diesel fuel, vaporized diesel fuel, and that ignites automatically because of the pressure. A jet engine is not like that. A jet engine is continuous combustion. So you've typically got um, some sort of a flame holder, 
um, and you've got fuel being injected and the pressurized air comes through. Once the air is hot, then that's where the, you have the difference between you can get either shaft horsepower, torque, or you can get thrust out of a jet engine. So if it's a thrust device, basically you run through the turbine after you come out of the, the, the combustion chamber. And, and if you're getting thrust out of the jet engine, the only thing the turbine is doing is driving the compressor on the front of the engine. So you use the expanding gas from the combustion chamber to drive the turbine, which compresses the air on the front to supply more pressurized air to the combustion chamber. Once that air comes through the turbine, then it's still hot and it's still pressurized. And then you put some sort of a nozzle on the back end of the engine, whether it's just a converging nozzle or uh, in the case of like fighter jets or something like that, you've got you've got a converging nozzle until it chokes and then you expand it. So you'll have a converging diverging nozzle to get more thrust. Cool. So that's that that give that's like a jet engine for thrust. In a in an engine that's a turbo shaft engine, you've got the turbine that will drive the compressor to give you compressed air to run through the chamber. But then you've got more turbine stages, and what that does is drive the output shaft that gives you torque. So that's typically like uh, the engine you would have in a helicopter is a turbo shaft, or the engine in the M1 tank is a is a gas turbine engine, but it's not thrust; it's torque. That you're getting so the turbine is driving a shaft that that pro, you know propels the tank interesting so you said one of the the limits of the uh jet engine is trying to get enough oxygen in to combust is that just because you're flying at forty thousand feet or is that inherent to a jet engine architecture that's inherent to every engine so even your car engine that's why they put turbochargers and superchargers on car engines and why Okay. Race cars have turbochargers, and why diesel engines in trucks and your pickup trucks have turbochargers is because you want to get more air. You want to get that pressure up to get more oxygen into the cylinder, because then you can give it more fuel and get more power. Okay. Clay, can you give us a brief review of how a turbocharger and a supercharger work? Okay. and uh, So the first thing that was developed was a uh, supercharger or a blower is another term that's kind of commonly used for that in the past. And what that was was a device that um, in, in car engines, gasoline engines, it was typically belt-driven off the front of the engine. But basically it was just a big uh, centrifugal compressor that was uh, driven off the front of the engine. So when the engine ran, the, uh, the centrifugal compressor would uh, take in intake air and instead, you know, so your normal car engine, it's not turbocharged or anything. You've got your, your air filter. You pull the air through the carburetor or through the air control valve, um, and then it goes into the cylinder. And you're basically pulling a vacuum as you pull that air into the engine. Well, what a supercharger does is you pull air into that compressor, and as it's turning, it's actually pulling in more air from outside, compresses it, and it's actually pushing the air into the cylinder. So when the intake valve opens, it's not the piston sucking air into the cylinder. When that intake valve opens and the piston goes down, the supercharger is actually pushing air through the intake valve into the cylinder. So the supercharger runs all the time, um, and it's good because you've got more boost at lower engine speed. 
Um, but you've also got a continuous load on the engine that you have to burn fuel to run this supercharger. What the turbocharger does is it's two parts. It's the turbine, so the exhaust gas, once it comes out of the, the cylinder of the engine instead of just going out the exhaust pipe, the turbocharger is on exhaust manifold. That exhaust gas runs through the turbine side of the turbocharger, and it's a, a centrifugal uh, tur all, turbine, and all it's doing is taking that gas out of the engine and spinning that blade, and it's on the other side of that shaft, on the other side of the turbocharger, is a compressor. And so the power that's being developed by the exhaust gas running through that, that blade is driving the compressor on the front of the engine, which is doing the same thing as the supercharger did. It's pulling the air in from outside, it's compressing it, and it's pushing the air into the cylinder. The thing that's nice about a turbocharger is it's basically free as far as work done on the engine. So, you know, the, you've got a little bit more back pressure on the engine because you've got this device off the exhaust manifold, but you don't have to drive it with a belt or a gear or anything like that. It's just in the exhaust flow. The, the, the bad thing about it compared to a supercharger is it only works when you've got a lot of exhaust flow. So you have to get your engine speed up and you have to have some power going before you start developing much boost to increase the airflow into the engine. So I had a Sunbird that had a turbocharger on it many years ago. And uh, when I stomped on that car, it would go. But I had I could pretty much count 1,001, 2,002 before anything happened. Right, right. Yeah, because you have to wait till the speed comes up and you start getting some air moving before it starts compressing the air and it comes into the cylinder. Right. So if I stomped on it, when I, if I was doing 70 and I stomped on it, it was there, but if I was at a stoplight and I stomped on it, I, I was waiting for a while before I got that right. boost. Yeah, because you had to wait for this engine speed to come up. So, yeah, because when you're running 70 on the highway, there's enough exhaust gas flowing that, that the turbocharger is moving pretty fast already. So if it, when it gets that demand for more power, uh, it's ready with that compressed air right away. Right. So it sounds like the, the gas engine it does pretty good at accelerating and decelerating. Whereas the the jet engine uh, provides continuous torque, it, it that's why it's great for a jet engine because when you're flying from from New York to Los Angeles, you're pretty much at a steady speed the entire time, and the and the thrust requirements are the same. But I I really don't know about a diesel engine. Why uh, why have buses and trucks used diesel engines for so long, and what are the properties of a diesel engine that make it so popular for uh, you know big power plants? What diesel engines are better than gasoline engines at are generating torque at lower speeds. And so uh, the difference between, so a spark ignition engine, like we talked about before, um, you've got four-stroke diesel and four-stroke, and I'm sorry, and two-stroke diesel engines. You've got, you know, four-stroke and two-stroke diesel, just like gasoline. The difference is um, on your intake stroke on a diesel engine, um, you're just pulling in fresh air. Or if it's turbocharged, when the valve opens and the piston goes down, you're pushing more air into the cylinder. So you've got your intake stroke, which is just fresh air. The valve closes, the piston comes up, and as that as you go up and and I I can't give you a number off the top of my head because I haven't been involved with that part of of gasoline engines, spark ignition engines. But you know, it's not 
uncommon for a diesel engine to have a compression ratio of 15 to 1, which is basically the the volume with the piston at at you know bottom at the bottom compared to the volume with the piston at top dead center is uh, 15 times greater. And I know gasoline engines aren't as high as that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, gasoline engines run lower compression ratios. So when you bring this piston up, you compress this air uh, and, you know, the pressure goes way up. The temperature goes up because you're compressing it. As you get near the top, you inject the diesel fuel and you've got uh, an injector that injects fuel into the cylinder. And, you know, there's a, a spray pattern on the tip of the injector you uh, spray the fuel, and basically the idea is you want the fuel, you know, to spray across the cylinder, you know, kind of get full coverage because you're burning that fuel across that whole plane. And diesel fuel, the property there is that it doesn't need a spark to ignite. So just the fact that you're injecting that fuel into this high-pressure, high-temperature air at the top of the compression stroke, the diesel fuel ignites. When that ignites, it pushes the piston back down at your power stroke. Your exhaust valve opens. You push out, and that's the that's the end of the stroke. And so, diesel engines have a lot more torque at lower speed. Um, if you look at, uh, a, you know, say a, uh, a torque curve on a, a gasoline engine versus a diesel engine, um, I know mm-hmm. that uh, you know peak torque is pretty close to. Uh, uh, you know, maximum power on a gasoline engine. Um, on a diesel engine, you know, the ones I work with um, that we put in some mechanical haul trucks, you know, our rated speed for the engine might be uh, 2,100 RPM, but uh, peak torque might be down at uh, 1,400 RPM. So, you know, we have a nice uh, spread of uh, peak torque and maximum horsepower, which aids in setting up the automatic transmission you know, for this mechanical drive truck to get the shifts and the, and the gear splits right on the shifts. Um, but mm-hmm. diesel engines are good for, uh, for torque. Uh, they don't run as fast generally as gasoline engines. So, you know, some of the smaller diesel engines and cars might have a, uh, a red line speed of, uh, you know, 4,000 or, or 4,500 RPM. A gasoline engine, it's not uncommon to have a red line of uh, 7,000 RPM. And so they run slower, but they have more torque. And because the uh, compression ratio is higher and because the pressures are so much higher, the engines are heavier. So diesel engines are heavier. The the blocks are heavier. The pistons have to be stronger. Uh, the heads are, are stronger. The, the head bolts that hold the, you know, hold everything together have to be stronger. So diesel engines are, are heavier and uh, typically more expensive because of that than gasoline engines are. So if you look at like a pickup truck, um, you know, the, the diesel engine option might be $5,000 or more to get the diesel engine in a pickup truck as compared to the gasoline engine. Now, there was, there's been kind of a, a shift over the past, I don't know, let's say decade. There was an emphasis when, when gas prices got back really high in the 1980s, a lot of car companies started introducing diesel cars because the at that point in time diesel fuel was cheaper than gasoline but the public didn't seem to buy too many of those diesel cars and uh, I do know that my father was one of the people who did and he had problems in cold weather with the fuel gelling up and and other problems where as soon as he could he he got rid of that and went back to a uh, a spark ignition engine but 
recently, there now I'm seeing a lot of ads for car companies and truck companies uh, selling selling diesel engines and selling them as being uh, better ecological. Uh, I'm sorry, better for the ecology. So, so what's changed with with the car manufacturers that they're trying? They're willing to try diesel engines in their vehicles again. Um, well, a lot of the, the diesel, if, you know, and I don't know what kind of car your dad had, but I know my mother-in-law had a uh, Chevy diesel station wagon, mm-hmm. um, that was, uh, a naturally aspirated diesel. And <clears throat> so if you look, you know, a diesel engine that's naturally aspirated has a lot lower power density than a gasoline engine. And so, you know, if you look at the power on a diesel engine, <clears throat> compared to a gasoline engine, you know, the, the, the power to the weight of the engine is, is a lot lower, uh, for a diesel engine just because it's so heavy. Um, and because, you know, it can't run as a high a speed as a, as a gasoline spark ignition engine. And mm-hmm. so what they did in the, you know, this, this Chevy, uh, station wagon diesel engine was a naturally aspirated diesel engine. It was not originally designed as a diesel engine. I, I believe they took the Chevy 350 uh, gasoline engine and converted it to a diesel. So it wasn't really set up to be an optimized diesel engine. It wasn't turbocharged. It had poor power. And back then it was not uncommon. Um, you know, so diesel engines were noisy. You had a lot of combustion noise. You had the, the diesel exhaust odor could be a bit obnoxious at times and they were pretty smoky so in those diesel engines when you when you stepped on it you get a lot of black smoke out of the tailpipe um and so that kind of it wasn't very uh, sociable you know people didn't like being around diesel engines it was like the old uh city buses uh you know when when jeff and i were growing up you know when the city bus would pull away from the bus stop you'd get a big cloud of smoke coming out the back and it kind of make your eyes water depending on what was going on um and so those early diesel engines you know weren't real good well part of what changed is the fuel system for the diesel engine um and so the old you know you have to have enough fuel pressure to overcome the the pressure of the uh, cylinder at top dead center. So you have to have quite a bit of pressure, but those old fuel systems that we had in the cars back then or in the truck engines, the Cummins diesel engines we had back then, you know, the the fuel injection pressure, you know, might have been 10 or 11,000 PSI, something like that. It it wasn't really high, and, and what would happen was, as the fuel was injected and started to burn, it wasn't burning evenly and, and uh, you know, caused problems. So as engines got more advanced, you know, they started doing things like uh, it's called uh, common rail uh, fuel injection. Um, so basically what you had, the, the fuel injectors back then, the, the pressure was generated by the camshaft of the engine. And so uh, when you wanted to inject the fuel, the same camshaft that drives the valves would drive the fuel injector. So you had a lobe on the camshaft that would inject the fuel. Well, you know, so you have to support that bigger load on the camshaft. You're, you're limited to, you know, how fast you can push the fuel in. Um, well, so common rail fuel injectors are controlled. There's a, an electronic valve that controls when the fuel's injected. Uh, the early ones would have... The pressure was still generated mechanically, 
by the rocker lever pushing down on the fuel injector. But then what we started getting in more modern engines is we would generate high pressure through a pump that was mounted somewhere else on the engine. You generate this high high fuel pressure that was either held in a rail along uh, the engine or in some cases in the injector itself. And then when you wanted to inject the fuel, you would just open the valve on the injector and inject the fuel. Once you could do that, you could do pre-injection, you could do post-injection, uh, depending on what part of the cycle you're in. You know, if you're at low speed, light load, um, there might be four or five different in injection events per per stroke of the engine. So, you know, just as as the piston's coming up, there might be four or five different injection events into that cylinder to give you a smooth combustion and to make it not so noisy. And so advances in technology and advances in fuel system made the engine more quiet. It made it less smoky. It gave you better power, better drivability. So, the you know, the diesel engines and the diesel cars that your dad had and that, you know, we drove back in the 70s were real dogs. You know, when you stepped on them, <laughs> they didn't go. They were just kind right. of dead. But the new engines, and especially, you know, the ones that are turbocharged and have the common rail fuel system, it's hard to tell you're not driving a gasoline engine car because the response is so good and it's so quiet and you don't have the noise and the smell like you did with the old engines. And so, you know, I think the uh, they're starting to come back because they're more fun to drive. You know, it's it's like driving a gasoline engine car. Now, they're more expensive because diesel engines, you know, they have to be, you know, higher weight. They have to take more pressure. They've got this expensive and exotic uh, common rail high pressure fuel system. So it's still an expensive option. But, you know, it's not an expensive option that you have to wear earplugs and hold your nose when you're around <laughs> it anymore. So, so and the Europeans have, you know, they kind of led the way in those diesel engines and cars because they've always had more expensive fuel. And one of the reasons it's more expensive is because of taxes. I mean, even in uh, the UK and Europe, most of the cost of the fuel is not because, wow, gasoline and diesel fuel is a lot more expensive here. It's because they tax it a lot higher. And mm -hmm. so, um, but they do tax it higher. And there were reasons, you know, they were kind of, uh, because of their tax policy, people would be encouraged to use diesel cars or diesel vehicles instead of gasoline. And so they worked on developing the technology to make it, you know, more fun to drive and more acceptable. And is it safe to say then that this this advance in diesel engines couldn't be done without the uh, the input of our friends, the electrical engineers who helped with control systems and uh, computer modules? <laughs> um, yes, yes. All that stuff, became, you know, so when I started um, in my applications job 20 years ago, it was just when, so I worked with high horsepower engines or engines over 750 horsepower. Um, and all our engines were mechanical back then. But we just came out with uh, full authority electronic engines. And by that, that meant, uh, you know, the whole fuel injection event um, was controlled electronically, you know, by the, the, you know, how much fuel was injected, the timing of the injection event uh, was, was determined electronically. 
Um, and that's just advanced since then. So, I mean, some of our engines now have uh, three electronic control modules on them to do everything that needs to be done on a modern um, 16 or 18 cylinder engine. Wow. 18 cylinder engines. That's, that's a lot of cylinders. <laughs> uh, we have, yes, we have uh, one engine now that's 18 cylinder. Uh, we're developing one that's going to be a 20 cylinder, a V20 engine. Didn't Porsche a while back have an engine that had an abnormally large number of cylinders? Well, Jaguar had V12s. Mm-hmm. That uh, what was that one we saw yesterday, Jeff, at the racetrack? Was it a '61 Jag with a V12? I think. Yeah, that was beautiful. Yeah, so I mean, you know, they've had, uh, and I think uh, Ferrari has had V12s and V10s. I know Dodge had a pickup truck with a V10 gasoline engine, but yeah, I think I've never heard of anything more than a V12 in a car. There might have been one, but I haven't heard of it. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to remember. I went to a, a Porsche exhibit at the museum down here back in January, and I remember there was one ho- uh, Porsche that had a lot of pistons on it. And I want to say maybe it was twelve, but I can't remember. I'm trying to Wikipedia it right now. High cylinder Porsche is not the best Google term. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let me uh, turn this just a slightly different direction, Clay. So I know that from your last podcast, your last episode with us. We learned that you were somewhat inspired by the uh, the character in My Three Sons, who was an aeronautical engineer. Yes. And you actually you studied aeronautical engineering in school. And so there's another form of engine that we haven't talked about, which are rocket engines. So are, are you at all disappointed that in your career you've not gotten to work on rocket engines? And can you give us, say, you know, the nickel tour of how a rocket engine compares to a jet engine or a diesel engine? Um, okay, and, and actually, I did work a little bit on rocket engines one uh, co-op period at NASA, my first <laughs> well, co-op good. period. <laughs> good. Um, uh, okay, so first, how a rocket engine works. Um, it, there's no – basically, the, the oxidizer and the fuel is, is carried on board and supplied to the co- combustion chamber. So typically, you know, rockets aren't just for outer space. You know, sometimes – you know, rockets are used for, you know, surface-to-air missiles or whatever. But basically, you don't have air flowing through the engine. Um, so you the, the oxidizer and the fuel is on board. Uh, and essentially, you've got a combustion chamber that uh, the oxidizer, you know, so if you think of like a liquid rocket engine, um, you've got a combustion chamber, and then you've got a way to supply the oxidizer and the fuel into the combustion chamber. And it has to be able to do it against high pressure because once things start burning, you've got a lot of pressure inside that combustion chamber. And then you've got a nozzle. So you've got a combustion chamber and then a converging nozzle. And typically they're converging, diverging nozzles. So what you do is you choke it. Once the flow chokes, then you start to expand it through the diverging nozzle and you get more thrust. So that's a, that's a liquid rocket engine. A solid rocket engine, like the solid rocket boosters on the shelf, Basically, it's a solid fuel that's got fuel and oxidizer mixed within the fuel itself. Um, and so if you were to look at the solid rocket fuel, it kind of looks and feels like, you know, like a coarse eraser. It's kind of flexible because, uh, you know, you really don't want it to crack because typically what happens is once you light that solid rocket fuel, 
your combustion surface is all the area exposed to the flame. And once it's lit, it's lit. There's no shutting it off. And so, <laughs> um, and so it's lit and the fuel is burning inside there. And as it burns, it creates high pressure. And then the same thing, you've got a nozzle where you choke it and then you diverge the flow and you get thrust out of the, out of the bottom of the rocket engine. If you're to have cracks in that fuel, uh, you know, if the, if the fuel was hard and it cracked, well, then that crack is open and the fuel, the flame propagates into that crack and you start getting a lot more pressure than maybe what you had intended or maybe what it was designed to contain. And if you get too much pressure, then that's when things tend to uh, fail or explode, whichever your word of choice is. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, oh, so yeah, my first, uh, my first co-op job at NASA we were actually, it was a, a cell that tested um, small rocket engines. And, and where I worked at Lewis Research Center in Cleveland, actually developed the, uh, the uh, Centaur stage of like the Atlas Centaur rockets. The Centaur stage was the ro- engines for that stage were developed at, at Lewis Research Center. But they had a small rocket test chamber. And basically, we could watch it through, you know, we the control room was remote, remotely located from where the engine was being tested in case, you know, for safety. Um, like how remote? Um, we were probably a quarter mile away. <laughs> That's pretty remote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we'd watch the engine and they'd have microphones and, and we were watching the engine test. Um, and what I remember about it was when they ran these tests for the rocket engine, you know, and they might test different nozzle configurations. They would test different configurations of um, injectors to inject the fuel and the, the oxidizer into the combustion chamber. Those are the different things they were testing. And um, the, the test would only run about one second, approximately, um, you know, maybe two seconds. And, you know, to, to my untrained ear, it basically just sounded like, you know, bam, you'd hear, you know, basically it sounded like a small explosion. And, uh, you know, the guys that have been doing this a long time would say, oh, that one sounded a little rough on the front end. And the way we collected data back then, so this is back, you know, we didn't have, you know, modern digital instrumentation to collect this stuff. What we had were called visicorders. And basically it was a, a roll of paper. Uh, and you would have uh, light traces. I can't explain how it worked. Maybe you can do that, Jeff. But you would have <laughs> maybe eight channels on a sheet of paper. And, you know, so one would be pressure and one would be temperature, you know, the, you know, the different things you're, you were measuring. And so when we would start the test, they'd say start the visicorders. And these things would run like 20 feet per second. So the paper was coming out horizontal out of these visicorders. And so we would start the paper, the test would run, we'd shut the visicorders down, and then you'd look at the traces on the paper. So you'd lay them out on tables and you're, you know, looking at this paper and you'd see the pressure come up and the temperature come up and different things going on. And so my first co-op job was to take those pieces of paper and fold them up so they would fit into file folders for later evaluation. So... (laughs) That was, that was what I got good at, but I got to look at, I got to look at the data too. So the other thing that was different back then, Clay, was that because that wasn't digitized, if someone said, well, what was the peak reading? You had to go, you know, 
page through the entire accordion of, of values in order to find what the peak was. Yeah, and then so what you do is you get all this data, and then you'd have to like manually, you know, so you're looking at it, and here's the peak, and you'd have to calculate the rise time and, you know, how fast the pressure came up. You know, there was a lot of, you know, hand calculations done. So, you know, you're – even though I could use a slide rule back in the day, I never had to do that. But, you know, you had to get your calculator out and you'd say, okay, so you had 30 milliseconds and the pressure went from, you know, X to Y. So you'd calculate the how fast the pressure was increasing. So, I mean, you actually had to, had to do all this stuff as opposed to having macros or letting Excel do it or, or whatever. Yeah, it's amazing how far we've come in a short period of time. So one of the neat things about a rocket engine is that you get this this brilliant uh, flame coming out the back end, and that makes sense when you know you're igniting and and these things are are thrusting uh, to to lift the rocket. But one of the things I wanted to ask you earlier when you were talking about jet engines is that uh, you were talking about uh, generating thrust, but typically, you know the the Boeing airliner going overhead doesn't have uh, you know flame shooting out of the back of it, but military aircraft sometimes do what what are they doing in that case to to cause this thing to light up and and show this flame coming out the back of the, of the engine it's the chemtrails that's the difference <laughs> <laughs> so so the the first jet engines that were developed were strictly turbojet engines what they started doing later and what all passenger planes use now jet engines are called turbofan engines um, and so what you have there is you've got the core. So the core of the engine is the compressor, the combustion chamber, the turbine, the nozzle. But then external of that, you've got large fan blades, large diameter, large fan blades. And the turbine, you've got some stages of the turbine that actually drive these external fan blades that are, you know, ducted blades and, and they're moving more air, providing more thrust to propel the plane. What that also mm -hmm. does is it kind of gives you more cool air. So that air is not hot because it's just fresh air coming in that gets compressed by the, by the turbofan blades and goes back. It also provides some more cooling air that kind of surrounds the hot air coming out of the core. So you don't have such hot air coming out of the back of the engine. Cause that can be kind of dangerous at times too. So, so yeah, I mean, you've got this core, you're burning fuel, but you're also getting a lot of thrust from, and they've got, they talk about high bypass turbofan engines, low bypass turbofan engines. And so what that, you're getting a lot of thrust from those fan blades that's not actually combusting any fuel in that air. It's just compressing the air and, and using it for propulsion. So, so those are the passenger planes all use high bypass turbofans. The flame you'll see out of military planes, um, you know, on takeoff, that's from something that's called an afterburner, which basically what they do is after you come through the compressor, the combustion chamber, the turbine, and then you come back to the nozzle, is um, when you have a turbocharger, basically you're injecting fuel into this hot air in the back of the jet engine and burning fuel. So you've got excess oxygen, you know, you don't have... 100% combustion, you don't have um, complete use of the oxygen in that air. So you inject fuel into this downstream of the turbine, and that generates a lot of pressure, and generates a lot of thrust. 
and it also generates a pretty impressive uh, flame plume at times out the back of the engine. So you get a lot of thrust, but it's not very efficient. <laughs> so it's good for air shows and when you re really need to get out of a, a situation very quickly. Yeah, yeah. When you need to, to get out of some place, it, it's a good uh, kick in the pants to, to get moving. <laughs> hey, I found what Porsche I was talking about. Oh, good. Yes. Uh, let's see. They had a couple with high cylinders. The Carrera GT had 10 cylinders, and then uh, the 917 had a flat 12, but they also did a prototype with 16 cylinders. <laughs> And I, I saw the 917 at the exhibit. That was a cool car. So so in the day, I mean, so Jaguars always had high cylinders, but but my recollection is they were known for being temperamental. And I think part of that was because in the time, trying to keep the timing straight between that many cylinders and, and manually carburate that many cylinders was difficult. So in the in these high cylinder diesel engines you work with, Clay, is it? Is it easier these days because you've got electronic ignition? So the uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, we've had 16-cylinder uh, engines even back when they were strictly mechanical. Um, and so the, <clears throat> you know, the fuel system, you had a, a variable pressure pump that would create uh, fuel pressure in the fuel rail that went to the injector as the uh, – the plunger on the injector came up, the fuel would go into the injector and then the plunger was driven down by the camshaft and it would inject it um, into the cylinder. So then you had to make sure all your mechanical timing of, you know, the cam and the crank and everything were correct. And then that gave you the predetermined uh, injection timing and everything that worked just fine. So what you're able to do with the with the new electronic control engines is you can actually vary the injection timing. So that helped for emissions, it helps for fuel efficiency, it helps for power. And so depending on, you know, what kind of load you're at or what kind of speed you're at, you can actually vary the injection timing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all that stuff helps. What the electronics do is it helps make it more efficient and it helps it meet emissions and it helps it improve fuel economy. So that's what the electronics do. I mean, the engine worked well before. And what you find out with customers is, you know, I mean, there's a lot of neat features you get with the electronics, too. We've got all sorts of sensors on the engine so we can tell you know, what the exhaust temperatures are on each cylinder. And we have diagnostic capability similar to your car. Or, you know, some people are actually doing uh, prognostication on their engine. They'll look at the data on their engine and they'll try to predict when they need to overhaul the engine or, or when they need to perform some maintenance before it gets so bad that it's a more expensive and time-consuming repair. So that's what the electronics lets you do. Um, but it was a hard sell because all the customer really wants is power when he wants it. And if he can get the power without any wires on the engine or any electronic devices that are going to fail, then that's just fine by him. Because, you know, typically when you make technological advances, usually the first ones that come out are not the most reliable. And so, you know, early electronic engines had issues and, and you know, it was sometimes problematic or you have problems that were hard to correct. Um, and uh, so it was a hard sell. Now, you know, you know, they're convinced that, you know, a lot of stuff that they want to do or like to do 
Um, they couldn't do without modern electronic engines. But sometimes in, uh, you know, different uh, uh, remote or, uh, you know, more uh, third world type countries, they just as soon have mechanical engines because they don't have to worry about them as much. Yeah, that makes sense. Very cool. So, so have you ever done any crazy work on your engines at home there, Clay? Or have just been basic maintenance? Did you try and hit the 250,000 mile mark? I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's maintenance and repair and, and replacing stuff when I have to. I mean, I'm not into, uh, you know, it's not like I've put, uh, nitrous oxide on my cars or, <laughs> or anything like that. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm just more into, uh, you know, preventative maintenance and, mm-hmm. uh, fixing things when they fail. So, but I mean, I've done, you know, I've replaced the radiators in my cars and, and uh, timing belts and water pumps and alternators and starters. So, so I've done that sort of sort of thing. Gotcha. Slowly, slowly getting into that world now that I have a garage and a place to store tools. <laughs> it's it's kind of fun. It's uh, it's a different experience from getting a working circuit to my car goes. It's a lot more I don't know visceral or something. I guess you really feel like you've done something. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's satisfying when, I mean, the time to work on a car is, you know, when it's broken and you have to have it fixed so you can go to work the next day, that's <laughs> kind of stressful and, and not much fun. But, yeah. you know, when you're, when you're doing some of the more preventative maintenance type things or, mm-hmm. or, you know, something. You got where, a beater uh, car and you're fixing it up. Yeah. Or, you know, so like in the event of the, the, the van. Um, when I replaced the radiator, um, well, that one was a, a slow leak. I could have just kept putting coolant in it, but you know, number one, it's not real good environmentally cause you're leaking coolant out all over the place. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, it had effect on the cooling and everything. So, you know, that was when I finally got the radiator and got all the parts, I pulled it in and drained the cooling system and replaced all that. And yeah, it's satisfying when you get it fixed and, and things are working better then. So, mm-hmm. Doesn't burst into flames down the highway. <laughs> yeah, less satisfying when you've got a, a uh, part scattered about you and it, it doesn't seem to be wanting to go back together. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I had this one, one of the most frustrating things I've worked on was uh, this old Isuzu Rodeo I had. And um, it was a dual overhead cam and, and the timing belt would make lots of noise because the tensioner would, would get weak. And, so you had this long run of the timing belt up to the cams and the belt would slap back and forth inside the gear cover on the front of the engine. And the water pump started leaking. Well, to replace the water pump, you had to pull the whole front of the engine off and you had to take the timing belt off. <laughs> and so I'm reading the directions on it and it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. I pulled the radiator out, a pan off, I pulled all the stuff off the front of the engine and I had to get the crank pulley off the crank. And they said, you know, you should be able to hold the pulley with a pair of water pump pliers or a strap wrench. And, and you just get a big uh, breaker bar with uh, the right size socket. And you can hold it with one hand and loosen the nut with the other. No way. I, could, I couldn't do it. And so I got my brother-in-law to help me. And, you know, I'm holding the, the, the pulley on the, on the, the wrench on the pulley and he's on the breaker bar. And we weren't budging it. 
So I finally went and I, I got a half inch impact wrench because uh, he's got a big air compressor up in the shop and the half inch impact wrench wouldn't touch it. I mean, I'm just <laughs> hammering it, you know, met full torque and I couldn't get that nut off. And so luckily it was a farm shop, so they had big equipment. So he actually had a three quarter inch impact wrench and uh, actually had to take some more of the car apart so I could actually get the three quarter inch impact wrench in there. By that time I was <laughs> mad. I was going to get that off. I didn't care what it took. And uh, so the three quarter inch impact wrench finally took that bolt out of the pulley, out of the end of the crank so I could pull the pulley off and it had been Loctited. Plus it had rusted because the water pump was leaking water down there. So I finally got that bolt out and then the pulley was supposed to just slip off the end of the crank according to what the instructions <laughs> said. And that didn't work either. So then I had to get a big uh, gear puller and uh, use that to pull a pulley off the, the front of the crank. So I was not particularly happy doing that car repair. But yeah, that was one. It was it was coming apart no matter what. And then whether I could put it back together was uh, we'll wait and see. But by that time I was <laughs> mad. So, but those are you know I, it's like everything else. I say you know that's what makes the good stories. You got to have problems so you have good stories later on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't have good stories, I mean, what's the point? <laughs> that's why I went and bought a nice uh, rubber mallet. Sometimes it's just good to beat on something <laughs> I had to do that for my drain plug because somebody over torqued it when they did it at the shop before I moved so I was putting all my weight on the, the ratchet trying to get it to loosen up a bit change my oil and nothing so put the ratchet back on and hit it with a hammer <laughs> from what I read it's not the best thing to do but you know I had to get it off It'd be better to put a put a wrench over the end of it or a pipe and just use that for more more torque, a longer lever arm. This was before Harbor Freight had the breaker bar sale, so <laughs> <laughs> now I'm equipped for next time. But you know, at the time my car was already up on jack stands, I had to do something. Yeah, that's one of the things I I you know I I tell my son you know you want it the right tightness, you don't want to. No, not everything has to be as tight as you can possibly make it, mm -hmm. especially when you're working on, uh, you know, aluminum engine blocks or, or putting bolts into aluminum. You don't want to over torque them. Yeah, it's not good. And so, Clay, how did you develop your sense for what the right torque was? Because not everybody has a torque wrench handy in, in the garage. Well, I've, I've broken off my fair share of bolts and had to, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, do the little... Uh, you know, and, and the bolt extractors they make, the left-handed thread things that go in there and, and back those bolts off. Uh, I've never been able to make those stupid things work. So then you get in there with a little drift and a hammer and you're tapping it around to, to walk the bolt back out of the hole. So, you know, I've, I've learned uh, doing that. And then also I, I do have, you know, I've, I've bought a couple of torque wrenches. So um, some things... I use it, so like uh, wheel bearings and things like that, but others it's kind of more feel. than. But it's just, you know, from doing it, you know, after breaking a few bolts off, and it's like, okay, that's too tight. <laughs> and and so have you had to make that sort of judgment out in the field where you were you were working on a customer's engine but didn't have the uh, the torque wrench that you needed? Well, I mean, in my job, um, not, I mean, typically 
if I'm doing something like that, I'm not, I'm not doing the, the critical torquing. I mean, we have certified uh, technicians and mechanics that do that stuff. Or overseas, you know, some of the mines I've been to in China and stuff, they have their local mechanics that do that stuff. And so I might help and I might get bolts started and stuff. But when it comes to the torquing, then the, the, the certified mechanics do that stuff. That sounds like an excellent idea. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. uh, sometimes the they pros. use torque wrenches and uh, sometimes they don't. So <laughs> they got their wrist calibrated. It's ISO certified. <laughs> you know, you do it, uh, you know, dozens of times a day for 25 years. You kind of get pretty good at it. Muscle, muscle memory. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a, a fair bit of it. I mean, because I ran into it some at, uh, at NASA, too. You know, when you're trying to put different components on, especially if it's like a new test part that, you know, Things look really good on the drawing board or on the CAD station. You know, that, that looks great. And then when it comes time to install it or actually put it on, it, it doesn't quite fit like it's supposed to. Um, and that's usually followed by lots of uh, cussing and and, and, every, <laughs> and yelling and everything else. But then there usually comes a point in time where the, the mechanics will look at you and go, um, why don't you go get a cup of coffee? And when you come back in about half an hour, we'll have this thing on, which usually <laughs> means that uh, they're going to do whatever it takes to get it on. And it'd be better if you didn't necessarily see how the sausage was made. So. <laughs> and how are you going to know the design better than if you don't see how the sausage is made? <laughs> well, see, I'm applications. I'm not designer. Uh, so I'm the kind of I'm the person <laughs> that comes back and says, yeah, that didn't work. So we got it on and it's running, but you have to do it better next time. Gotcha. Uh, only semi-related. How do you calibrate a torque wrench? I mean, you have to know you're, you're torquing to exactly 30 newton meters or whatever the hell you need to torque to. How do they calibrate? I'm not exactly sure how they calibrate it. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's, you know, they've got given, uh, you know, they, whether it's a load cell or something. And, you know, so most of the, the torque wrenches that, that we use, that I've seen used by our field guys, are uh, they're called clicker type torque wrenches so you know you you set the torque you want and basically you pull and it's supposed to be a steady pull you know so it's not like you jerk it real fast or anything but just a steady pull and when it clicks you know basically when it breaks yep. over that's the torque yeah I have the so same i'm one sure what they're doing is or similar style yeah so basically what they're doing is is they've got a load cell and it, it needs to be so close when when that thing clicks um, but yeah, the first one I bought was a beam type because the clickers were real expensive mm -hmm. and the beam works, but, uh, you know, it's not as accurate. Yeah, the clickers are still, I mean, I guess it depends on your definition of expensive, but like one of the Craftsman brand ones will set you up, I'll set you back a hundred or so at least. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So this beam type are not particularly handy when you've got your, your arm cranked around the tire up into the engine, <laughs> trying to pull down on a, on a, yes. a, a, a bolt. And there's no way you can see what the dial reads. Yeah. I got, uh, just the Harbor Freight, uh, torque wrench. And I was told if you're doing like lug nuts and drain plugs, it's fine, but don't touch your engine with it. <laughs> yeah. And I had, uh, you know, I did the front wheel bearings on the van couple of years ago and and i'm trying to think the one side i didn't have a, a torque wrench that went to high enough torque back then and so i kind of you know it's like well you know i weigh about 200 pounds and 
and uh, this is how long this thing is, and so that's how I torqued it. <laughs> and it turns out that uh, you know the, the bearing that I used it failed about ten months later, and when I took it back, it, they replaced it. You know, it had a, a, a lifetime warranty. When I took it back, they said, "Yeah, they had a batch of bad bearings, and it was really critical that you got the correct torque on them when you were putting those wheel bearings in." Mm-hmm. So. By that time, my brother-in-law had a torque wrench, and I used that, and, you know, it's still going strong, you know, three years later, so. Cool. So I take it in engines, they don't use a lot of these uh, torque indicator nuts or um, uh, the die washers or anything like that? No, Well, no. Um, I mean, and sometimes, you know, depending, you know, maybe in development or when they're doing test fitting, they might do some of that stuff, but it's not like a, a standard practice to do that. But, you know, some of the thing, you know, as, as cylinder pressures go up uh, in the engine, uh, the higher the pressure, then it's more critical that you, uh, you know, maintain that joint between the, uh, the head and the, uh, the cylinder block deck and, and getting that, you know, held so you don't get any fretting or failure or anything becomes critical. And so, you know, there's a lot of work on, you know, how to get that, uh, get those bolts torqued, excuse me, correctly. All right. Well, I think we're ready to go to the beer questions. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, I was looking here. I was looking down here. There's a couple of ones I was trying to figure out how I was going to answer. Well, um, the one thing I was going to say, you said you never actually had any internal combustion engine classes. I actually did. Well, okay. So when I was at Purdue, I studied, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I think stru- uh, my major – you know, within the aero school was, uh, was structures or, you know, structural, uh, engineering, but then my, uh, minor was, was propulsion. So I had, uh, two rocket engine classes and then I had a 400 level ME class that was internal combustion engines. So, I mean, it didn't get as so much into the hardware, but, you know, we had, did a lot of design stuff and, and some, uh, computer modeling or what passed for computer modeling back then. So I had my card deck and, and uh, (laughs) ran my program that way. So good old Fortran. Yes. So, you know that, so I did have some of that. And then that's kind of when I started working on my cars and stuff too, back then, just out of necessity. Yes. What, what was the, uh, I remember a green vehicle. I can't remember what the, uh, the make was on that. 75 Dodge Coronet. Yes. <laughs> Looked like an old uh, state police car, except it was green. <laughs> yeah. So, Clay, uh, you've worked on engines on your own and uh, obviously in the field. What's what's the biggest engine you've worked on? Uh, the biggest engine that, that we currently use in mining, a V18, the displacement is uh, 78 liters. Um, so, wow. uh, it's, uh, 3,500 horsepower. It's a lot of horsepower. Um, we're currently, it's actually going to be out for, uh, locomotives here within the next year. Um, but we're working on a, uh, V16 engine that's 95 liter displacement. That will be 4,000 horsepower. Wow. <laughs> I, I can't even count that high. well so so how do you go about measuring this it's one thing to go into uh harbor freight and get a a a torque wrench 
but uh, a torque wrench isn't going to handle that kind of torque. Well, typically um, in the in the test cell, um, it, it, all our test cells use uh, water brakes. We don't have like motoring eddy current dynamometers big enough to take uh, that kind of horsepower um, in our test cells. So we use water brakes, which basically um, you have like a turbine and a stator and, and you use water pressure to control the load. The way they measure torque is there's uh, an arm that comes out the side of the uh, water brake and you put a load cell in there and basically you, you measure how much load is generated at that known distance. And so you get the torque and then you can calculate horsepower from torque. Cool. Do you remember the formula, Jeff, for calculating horsepower from torque? Uh, see, horse, well, I know torque, uh, power is torque times velocity. Okay. Very good. So, so I would I would have to look up the exact when you're converting and trying to horsepower is one of those English units and so it's not metric and so you have to make strange conversions so there's a thirty six hundred or thirty six thousand in there someplace. Well, it's it's uh, it's torque in foot pounds times RPM divided by fifty two fifty two. Fifty two fifty two. Hmm, that's not even close to thirty six thousand. I'm trying to remember what 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 formula I was remembering. Well, last time we talked to you, you were on the the uh, the journey, uh, the effort to consume one of every beer uh, made in the world. How are you coming on that uh, on that journey? Well, whenever I see beers I haven't tried before, I try them. But you know, <laughs> you know, knowing my luck, they're probably coming out with uh, beers faster than I'm trying new ones. So you know, I'll just have to live forever, I guess. Right. And, and are there any that you've tried recently that you were extremely fond of? No, I, there, none that I would say are my favorite, though. No. I mean, um, and I can't remember when we talked last. Had I been to South Africa when we talked last time? I don't believe so. Okay. I was in South Africa last uh, September. And, you know, I, I had several pretty good beers there, but none of them were my favorite. You know, my favorite beer I've ever had is one I had – uh, when I was in uh, the UK several years ago, and it was called Caffrey's Irish Ale, and that's that's my favorite beer I've ever had anywhere. And I've had a lot of good beers, none that I would say were were quite as good as that was. I got a new current favorite from last week when I was in Portland for work. I stopped it for dinner at Deschutes Brewing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Yeah, they, they got some good stuff. <laughs> uh, they're Hop in the Dark, which is a black IPA, but they used porter malt. So the front of it was all like cascade hops, but then you got like coffee and smoke on the back. Like just the way they blended it was, yeah, blew me away. <laughs> well, now in the last week, uh, I have switched the, uh, the feed, the audio feed from our own web server over to, uh, Libsyn who, and they, these people do audio feeds for podcasts for, you know, for pay, but I mean, they do it, uh, uh, worldwide. And so the distribution I'm hoping to our listeners will be a little faster when they download their podcasts. And uh, I also get stats. And so I now know from from just four days of stats, I, we have a pretty good listenership in the United Kingdom. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll be interesting to see whether uh, they agree with uh, Clay's uh, assessment that the Caffrey Irish Ale is is one of the world's best. So. Uh, they they probably won't. They're pretty opinionated about what beer they like. So. <laughs> some some people will love it and some people will hate it. 
Uh, the one thing I do know is that the Germans don't like any English beer, and the English don't like any German beers. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Got pretty solid ratings on Beer Advocate. H- having looked at a little bit up about this uh, Caffrey's Irish Ale, I think that sounds like an awesome beer. I just got to figure out where to find one. Yeah, I know, I'm, right? They uh, the 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 Clotta Pub. In Columbus, Ohio, was the last time I saw it here. We saw that because Dave, when he went to the UK, he really liked it too, Jeff. So, oh, okay, yeah. I mean, I think seen it in selected Irish pubs. Um, we've been to, but it's not very common. But we assume that it's not like here in the U.S. We get a lot of marketing saying you know Foster's is the Australian beer, but uh, your conversation with those in Australia was that that was not the beer they like to drink. No, they don't, they don't drink that crap. That's what they, <laughs> <laughs> that's what they sell to other people. <laughs> and I will admit that, you know, I've had many other beers in Australia that, that were much better than Foster's. So, Yeah, it's my understanding Foster's is kind of the Bud Light of Australia. Yeah. <laughs> well, then there's another one in Australia called the Victoria Bitter that uh, – is sort of like the the Budweiser of Australia. You know, it's it's not bad. I I drank quite a few of those at, at times. But, uh, you know, if I had to pick, you know, one beer to drink, it, that wouldn't be it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should uh, we should let you go, uh, Clay. You've you've spent a good portion of your evening explaining engines to us, and I very much appreciate your willingness to do so. Uh, it was it was fun. I, I like doing this so. Well, we'll have to have you back next time, or, you know, soon. Okay, well, you guys have a good night. You too. Take it easy, Clay. You too. Okay. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson. 